Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 16 of the UK's first Freedom of Information podcast. I'm Ibrahim Hassan. In November and December 2008, the Information Commissioner published 29 decisions, whilst the Information Tribunal published 11. I'm here to guide you through some of these. In this episode, amongst others, we'll be discussing decisions on information held by the private sector, vexatious requests, what costs can be passed on to an applicant, Section 30 and access to audit reports, names of childcare managers, access to legal advice, and disclosure of consultant tender bids and scorecards. Over the last few months, we have discussed many decisions of the Information Commissioner and the Information Tribunal on the meaning of Section 3.2 of the Act. We've learnt that under this section, information is held on behalf of a public authority by a contractor and so subject to the Act under Section 3.2 if it is held under contract or as part of the delivery of services to the public authority or where it is held in a repository or archive service. It's also important to remember that just because a contractor holds information for its own purposes does not mean that the same information is not also held on behalf of the public authority for freedom of information purposes. In a decision involving the Department for Work and Pensions dated the 17th of November, the complainant requested information from the DWP as to whether there were any complaints recorded about a doctor employed by ATOS, a company which provides medical services to the DWP in relation to individuals claiming certain types of benefits. The DWP initially stated that it held no such information and later added that even if it were held by ATOS on their behalf, it would be exempt from disclosure by virtue of Section 40 of the Act being the personal data of the doctor's concern. The Commissioner found that due to the contractual relationship between the parties, complaints information held by ATOS, if it existed, would be held by them on behalf of the DWP by operation of Section 3.2 of the Act. However, he ruled that the DWP was correct to rely on Section 40 to neither confirm nor deny the existence of the requested information, as it was the personal data of the doctors, and disclosure would contravene the data protection principles. On the issue of whether the information was held on behalf of the DWP, the Commissioner noted that the contract between the parties stipulated that ATOS employees can only undertake medical examinations if they are approved by the DWP. The Commissioner ruled that the information collected and organised by ATOS is in effect held on behalf of the DWP to enable them to make a proper determination regarding approval of a doctor. The fact that ATOS hold the information for their own purposes does not prevent them from also holding it on behalf of the DWP for freedom of information purposes. The Commissioner continues to adopt a robust approach in deeming requests as vexatious under Section 14. In a decision involving Cheshire Constabulary dated the 30th of October, the complainant made a request for seven pieces of information relating to the constabulary's coat of arms and logo, its policies regarding the recording of conversations, and for information about the constabulary's internet domain and service provider. The request was made during an ongoing dispute between the complainant and the constabulary. During the course of this dispute, members of the constabulary were the subject of several complaints, and the complainant also made a significant number of information requests under the Data Protection Act. The constabulary refused the complainant's freedom of information requests under Section 14 of the Act on the grounds that it was vexatious. 
It was drawn to this conclusion by the complainant's stated intent to use the requested information to assist him in setting up a website publicising his grievances. The commissioner agreed with the constabulary. He considered that this request, together with history of complaints and other information requests, constituted a significant burden to the constabulary. He also noted that the intent behind the request would have the effect of harassing the constabulary. The Information Tribunal is also adopting a strict line on vexatious requests. In Stephen Carpenter and the Information Commissioner and Stevenage Borough Council, it upheld a decision of the Information Commissioner agreeing with the Council that a persistent requester was vexatious. The Tribunal even considered awarding costs against the appellant. Whilst it decided not to do so, it did warn that appellant should reflect on the possibility that costs in quite significant terms could be awarded against them. In December, the Information Commissioner updated his guidance note on vexatious requests. It can be read on his website www.ico.gov.uk. Under Section 12 and the Freedom of Information Fees Regulations, a public authority can only cost the time it takes to find and supply the information at a rate of £25 per hour. If this comes to over £450, or £600 in the case of government departments, there is no need to supply the requested information. A question I'm often asked on training courses is what happens if the information is held by an external company and their charge for retrieving the information for the public authority is more than £25 per hour. Can the additional charge be taken into account when assessing the £450 limit? According to a recent commissioner decision involving Maidstone and Tunbridge Wells NHS Trust, the answer is firmly in the negative. The request involved the trust having to retrieve hundreds of closed files from its external archiving service. It added the charges levied by the company to its £450 limit estimate. The Commissioner disagreed with this approach. He ruled that whilst a public authority can take into account the time taken by an outside contractor to retrieve information at a rate of £25 per hour, it cannot take into account any charge over and above this fixed rate. This is where it's important when addressing freedom of information issues with contractors and potential bidders to ensure that the charge that they levy for retrieving information is appropriate and reasonable. Audit reports are often the target of freedom of information requests by those who suspect wrongdoing or fraud by a public authority or bodies it is auditing. Where a local authority audit department is investigating allegations of fraud, it often tries to claim the Section 30 exemption to withhold information. This allows information to be withheld if it relates to investigations and proceedings conducted by public authorities. However, a recent decision has emphasised that this exemption can only be claimed where a public authority is holding information about investigations or proceedings that it has a legal duty to conduct. The complainant requested a copy of a report detailing the findings of an audit carried out by the council on a local charity. The audit followed allegations that funds were being mismanaged at the charity. The council refused the complainant's request on the basis that the exemptions in section 30 and 36 applied. The commissioner decided that section 30 was not engaged because the council did not have a legal duty to carry out the investigation. The Council had argued that it had the powers to institute and conduct criminal proceedings for fraud in its own right, pursuant to Section 222 of the Local Government Act 1972. 
The Commissioner noted, though, that this section provides the power for local authorities to prosecute only in cases where it's expedient to do so. He considered that in general it would not be considered expedient to prosecute where the police or the CPS would be better placed to decide if a criminal prosecution was viable or warranted. In general, such powers, as are set out within Section 222 of the Local Government Act, are only used by local authorities to implement trading standards legislation, to address antisocial behaviour, or in other circumstances where the prosecution relates to a local authority's specific functions, not the general criminal law. The Commissioner also ruled that Section 36, prejudicial to the effective conduct of public affairs, did not apply in this case, and even if it did, the public interest lay in disclosure. He ordered disclosure of the requested information, except where it consisted of personal information of junior employees of the charity where the Section 40 personal data exemption could be claimed. However, the personal data of senior employees of the charity was not exempt, other than a few sections which impact directly upon the private as opposed to the public lives of those individuals. In episode 8, we discussed the Commissioner's decision involving NHS Direct, where he ruled that disclosure of geographic telephone numbers for NHS Direct contact centres, as opposed to the usual 0845 number, would be exempt under Section 38, Health and Safety. The Commissioner felt that it was in the public interest to ensure that calls were routed to the most efficient call centres managed by trained NHS staff appropriate to the medical need. This could only be done by use of the central 0845 number. A similar request was the subject of a decision in December involving the BBC. The complainant requested the equivalent geographic telephone number for each of the BBC's non-geographic telephone numbers, usually 0870 or 0845 numbers. The BBC said that it held some, but not all, the requested information, and of the information that it did hold, Section 38 and Section 43 exempted them from disclosure. The Commissioner ruled that the exemptions were not engaged, and therefore the information which was held by the BBC should be communicated to the applicant. With regard to Section 38, the BBC argued that disclosure of some of the numbers would lead to the local telephone exchange being overloaded by massive calls from lobby groups or competition entrants seeking direct access. This could lead to equipment failure and emergency calls going unanswered. This would in turn endanger the health and safety of individuals. The Commissioner was of the view that the evidence to back up the above argument provided by the BBC in the form of a letter from one telephone provider was not compelling enough to engage the Section 38 exemption. It had failed to give a persuasive indication of the number of simultaneous calls to a geographic number that would cause the equipment failure and the likelihood of those calls being made. Furthermore, the Commissioner had not been presented with sufficient evidence that this had happened previously or is likely to occur in the future. He didn't discount that there is some possibility of harm occurring, but the likelihood was sufficiently remote not to engage the exemption. With regard to Section 43, the BBC argued that its commercial interests would be prejudiced in that a disablement of telephone exchanges would hamper its core business functions. Again, the Commissioner relied on the lack of evidence to rule that this exemption was also not engaged. In December, the Information Commissioner ordered Ofsted to release the names of almost 30,000 childcare managers and their relevant place of employment in England. Ofsted initially denied holding the relevant information on the basis that collating the relevant material would constitute the creation of new information. 
Commissioner, relying on previous tribunal decisions, established that the information is held by Ofsted on a database from which it can be downloaded, and it was not the creation of new information. He also carefully considered Ofsted's argument that disclosing the names would breach the Data Protection Act, and so was exempt under Section 40. In preparing the decision notice, the Commissioner's staff gathered evidence that childcare managers' names are already often in the public domain. Directories of daycare settings with named managers are available on the internet, and many childcare settings provide staff details on their own website. He also noted that there is a legitimate public interest, especially for parents, to know the identity of managers responsible for the care of their children. In the light of this, he ruled that disclosure of the information would not be a breach of the Data Protection Act and the exemption under Section 40 could not be claimed. Public authorities are regularly requested information about staff who leave the organisation through retirement or by mutual consent. Often they rely on the Section 40 personal data exemption to withhold the information. The Commissioner has ruled that this is the correct approach in a number of his decisions. In December 2008, we saw one of the few challenges to this approach in an information tribunal appeal involving Doncaster College where a journalist wanted information on the investigation into the former college principal, Mr Gates, including the reports drawn up during the inquiry. In Rob War and the Information Commissioner and Doncaster College, the challenge was on the basis that the information related to a senior official carrying out public functions and the public interest favoured disclosure. The tribunal ruled that disclosure of the information would represent a significant invasion of the principal, Mr Gates's privacy, and would be unfair. Witnesses who gave evidence during the investigation that eventually led to his departure from Doncaster College would also have a reasonable expectation that the information they provided in the context of the investigation would not be released to the general public. It follows that disclosure of their personal data would be unfair to them as well as Mr Gates. In addition, the tribunal ruled that there is a recognised expectation that internal disciplinary matters of an individual will be private. Even among senior members of staff, there would still be a high expectation of privacy in respect of these matters, and the majority of the information sought in this case consisted of material not normally available to the public. The tribunal also gave weight to the existence of an agreement between the college and Mr Gates, which included a provision that expressly limited the amount of information that would be made available to the public about the termination of his employment. This gave rise to a reasonable expectation that no further information would be released, apart from a press release which was agreed between the parties. The tribunal felt that even in the public sector, compromise agreements may be expected to be accorded a degree of privacy as long as there was no evidence of wrongdoing or criminal activity. There was no such evidence in this case. This decision shows the line that has to be drawn between professional information of a senior employee, which often is disclosed, and disciplinary matters which are considered to be more private and normally are not disclosed. In November 2008, the House of Lords Appointment Commission was ordered by the Information Tribunal to reveal some details of legal advice it received during the Cash for Peerages affair, which it had been trying to withhold on the grounds that it was exempt under Section 42, Legal Privilege. In Rosenbaum and the Information Commissioner and the House of Lords Appointments Commission, the Tribunal decided, though, that it was in the public interest for other details of legal advice to remain secret. This is only the second time that the tribunal has ordered that the traditional secrecy of legal advice should be breached due to freedom of information. 
The previous case involved Mersey Tunnel Users Association and the Information Commissioner and Mersey Travel, which we discussed in episode 11 of this podcast. The tribunal made clear that its ruling in this particular case was because of the exceptional role in public life played by the House of Lords Appointment Commission. Its remit both in proposing non-party peers itself and also in vetting party nominations for peerages gives it significant influence over the composition of Parliament and thus indirectly on Parliament's decisions. It was therefore in the public interest to disclose some of its legal advice. Public authorities often receive freedom of information requests for not only tenders and contract information, but also information about the procurement process. Normally, Section 43 may be argued that disclosure would prejudice the commercial interests of the contractors and or the public authority. However, if the bidders are individuals, public authorities must also consider Section 40 and ask whether the requested information is the personal data of the bidders. In a decision involving the Department for International Development, dated the 27th of November, the complainant requested a copy of the winning tender proposal for a particular consultancy post, along with details of the scores awarded to all of the tenders which the department received. While the department provided the complainant with the overall score awarded to the winning tender and the average score awarded to his tender, it refused to disclose the winning tender proposal on the basis of Section 40, that it was personal data, and Section 43, that it would harm commercial interests. It also refused to disclose a detailed breakdown of the scores awarded to the tenders on the basis of Section 43. The Commissioner concluded that the winning tender was not exempt on the basis of Section 43, and although some of the information contained in it was personal data, a significant proportion of it was not. He therefore ordered the Department to disclose this information to the complainant. With regard to the detailed score sheets for each tender, the Commissioner concluded that this is personal data of each individual who submitted a tender. He decided that the score sheets held by the Department in relation to the complainant's own tender, were exempt on the basis of Section 41. In other words, he could make a subject access request. The Commissioner also concluded that disclosure of the winning tenderer's scorecards would be unfair and was therefore exempt from disclosure on the basis of Section 40, personal data. That concludes this month's Freedom of Information podcast. ActNow Training has just launched a Freedom of Information helpline service. This is designed to supplement your internal FOI expertise by acting as a sounding board or signpost service for you to discuss your Freedom of Information or environmental information requests and possible responses. Through the helpline, I'll be available to guide you through the relevant area of law, discuss possible exemptions and how to deal with any complaints. At a time of increasing pressure on public sector budgets, The ActNow FOI helpline is the most cost-effective solution for your FOI problems. More details at www.actnow.org.uk It's now two and a half years since I started this Freedom of Information podcaster service. All previous scripts and programmes are available to purchase on a CD-ROM from ActNow Training. If you'd like to know more, please email me at ih at informationlaw.org org.uk. Don't forget, all these decisions will be discussed in my 2009 Freedom of Information Update workshops in Manchester and London. More details on the ActNow website. Thank you for listening, and until the next time, 
Goodbye.